Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of ESIC Lending Insights. I'm excited to be with you today. This is Brooke Gilman, one of our regular ESIC Lending Insights hosts. With me as well, I have my colleague out of London also co-hosting today, Simon Lee. And Simon and I are excited to have a chat today with our other colleagues out of London, Ed Oliver. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Good. And the reason why we're excited is because When Simon and I get on the phone and we chat with Ed, it's bound to be riveting conversation. And this time around, we're focused on CSDR and the pending implementation of the settlement discipline regime. And CSDR, again, is the Central Securities Depository Regulation. And Ed, you love a good acronym. So tell us about CSDR. Tell us about the background of the regulation itself. Obviously it's broader than securities lending, but yet has a portion now that's relevant for our market. And I know you went from the glory days of SFTR to now the focus on CSDR. So give us the background, how it came to be, what the reasoning behind the initial regulation was and what the implications are as we're heading into February of next year. Yeah, so I do love a four-letter acronym. You're absolutely right. And I do get concerned when we put one of these out there and it has something like CSDR or SFTR on it, that it will take down the host website with the amount of visits that get made to it. It's a legitimate concern, I think. Uh, Don't worry. (laughs) It is. But seriously, I mean, CSDR is quite all-encompassing, more so in some ways than SFTR. So this was born out of the global financial crisis. It's part of the EU regulatory framework resulting from that. And the origination of CSDR was published in 2014 and is basically looking to improve settlement efficiencies in the EU market. So there's a number of different elements to it. But the piece that we all get caught up in and that we are focused on is the settlement discipline regime, SDR, that, as you mentioned, is implementing in February next year. And will encompass not just securities finance transactions, but regular cash equity transactions, cash fixed income transactions. So there's quite a bit in scope. And unlike SFTR, which was focused as an issue for reporting for EU entities, this is global. So if you are anyone globally transacting in the EU markets, then this needs to be something that you need to be focused on. I'm going to ask a question, and you touched on, Brooke mentioned it, about implementation date of February 2022. For some context, that date has been pushed back on more than one occasion over recent years. And I understand there is a question outstanding at the moment that's out for consultation with the regulator. So could you maybe give a little bit of historical background on where those dates were originally reason for the initial pushback and also any views you have on, well, I guess the the consultation is worth discussing now, content of that, but also any views on whether the February 22 date gets pushed further based on that consultation or not. All good questions. So, well, first of all, this should have really been rolled out Q4 2019. So that was where we were originally thinking about things. The fact it's been moved back to February 22 is down to a number of different reasons. And, you know, I think it's unlikely to move again would be my best guess at this stage in time. Now, there's two elements to SDR. And one of them is the introduction of cash penalties. And the second is the introduction of mandatory buy-ins. And it's the mandatory buy-ins that is currently causing the headaches. So in our case, in securities finance, there is a pretty well understood process for voluntary buying in. 
people where we need to. And that gets supported under the legal agreements and documentation that exists in securities lending. So a lot of questions being asked about why do we need mandatory buy-ins and some of the unintended consequences of that. So there's been a huge pushback on mandatory buy-ins. Something like 16 industry associations wrote a letter to ESMA and the European Commission earlier this year to recommend that they decouple mandatory buy-ins from the cash penalties and either consider taking out altogether or certainly not doing it in February 2022. So there's been pushback on that. There has been consultation, as you rightly point out, already this year. There's now an impact assessment that's being conducted by the European Commission. And only today, and we're talking on the 24th of September, by the way, just to date my comment, but only today ESMA have written to the European Commission asking that clarification is given to market participants no later than the end of October. So there's a recognition that industry participants are waiting to find out what's going to happen with the mandatory buy-ins. And we really do need to know because obviously everyone is in different stages of preparation ahead of the February 2022 deadline. So best guess is that there is a groundswell of opinion that mandatory buy-ins don't necessarily need to happen on day one, primarily because we think the introduction of cash penalties will improve settlement efficiency just by itself. And maybe that's a tool, mandatory buy-ins could be a tool that you bring in later. But I think we will have to wait and see. But at this stage, we're expecting more guidance than prior to the end of October. You said it's out for response by the end of October. Is there any precedent as to whether that will be a definitive response from the Commission or whether it will be out for further consultation? Well, it's tricky because I think at this stage, the timeline is coming upon us. And you've got to find a way through the labyrinth of European regulation to make this change. And that isn't as easy as you might think. So one of the things I think in the ESMA letter acknowledges that they need to then work on how do they make, if the European Commission give the guidance that mandatory buy-ins are either not going to come into play at all or will be at a later stage, then that needs to then be worked through the regulatory roadmap and that may not be as easy as we perhaps think. So I think there's a number of different things that will have to happen. And going back to your question, have we ever sort of seen this type of thing before? I don't think we really have, where we're really fundamentally trying to change something at the 11th hour. So we'll have to see how that develops. But I think once you get the guidance, then people can kind of relax and think, okay, how do I now work to what I think this is going to look like? And then leave it to the legislators to work out how that's going to actually progress through EU legislation. All of the information around the settlement sort of fill penalties and otherwise, is that already known and set and there's no questions around the scope of that piece of this? And if so, can we maybe now focus on that? That's right. So I guess most people are sort of hoping mandatory buy-ins goes away and therefore a lot of the discussions in industry groups have been around what to do about self-help penalties and sort of mitigating the risk of those. So agreed, let's focus on self-help penalties next. Okay. And so can you give us a bit more background then on sort of the mechanics of what that means? Because my understanding is is that it's more involved than perhaps traditional fail penalties might be by just market participants in many markets today, and that you can have penalties for even not having matched instructions, for instance, or other things. So can you walk through what the mechanics are of what it'll look like for the European markets? And then we can maybe talk about how that applies to lenders. 
Yeah. So self-fail penalties basically kick in as soon as you fail. So on the intended settlement date, which I refer to as ISD, on ISD plus one, if you failed on ISD, you will get a self-fail penalty. How do you define the you in that statement? Yeah, that's the entity that is failing to the other entity. So this is where it's quite interesting because it's sort of neutral, if you like, because the CSDs involved in the transaction in settling the transaction are responsible for saying, okay, you're the failing party, and then claiming the failing party and crediting the party that effectively is being failed against. So it is a two-way process that I think hopefully people don't lose sight of. So in many cases, you actually could end up getting credited at month end with a number of credit penalties if you're the one that's being failed against significantly. So anyway, to go back to the question, so you will incur that self-fail penalty for every day that you're either failing or you're being failed against. And for equities, that is one basis point a day. So that is the way it's working. As I say, the CSDs are the ones responsible for monitoring those and passing through those penalties. That will then be reported to the subcustodians who will report it to the custodian banks, the global custodians, who will then report this to their clients. And I think one thing we have to acknowledge is clients will receive reporting on not just their cash equity fails, but also if they're in securities lending programs, there'll be securities lending fails and credits, debits and credits against them that they'll be reported. And that's being collected, reported and paid on a monthly basis. And clients would then receive that from a custodial entity, correct? Okay. Correct. I had a question then, Ed, knowing how much you enjoyed SFTR and the work you engaged in there and trying to put this in a similar context or framing it similarly. SFTR, we can say that the responsibility of SFTR fell on the beneficial owner, fell on the lender, but the actual execution of that was delegated to lending agents for the most part. So is it possible to frame SFTR in a similar context or is that way off the mark in terms of responsibilities of execution of record keeping and looking from a beneficial owner lender's perspective? Yeah, so there are differences. So the responsibility, it is a CSDR-led regulation. So it is a CSD regulation. So the responsibility for appropriately processing the penalties is lies with the CSDs. So really, I think the lender in this case, or the beneficial owner, is receiving reporting on what's going on. And then obviously their role, I guess, will be to review that in terms of the context of whether it's debit or credit, what's perhaps led to that, and trying to understand if there's anything they need to do as a result of it. But it's not their responsibility to actually do any of the work around reporting it. It's to be the recipient of the report and just understand the data that's within it. There are significant differences in that. I think Clearly, though, as I mentioned earlier, one of the more significant differences is the breadth of this regulation, the impact to global beneficial owners, rather than just the EU beneficial owners who were actively involved with SFTR. So as a recipient then of reporting from ultimately the CSDs on through to the custodian to the end lender slash beneficial owner. So can we talk about when there is a securities lending transaction ultimately that causes settlement failure and penalties are applied, how that will work and who's responsible and what do lenders need to be mindful of to minimize those costs 
So maybe we can walk through some examples or you can speak to that in a bit more detail, Ed. Sure, yeah, and I think this is the thing that everyone's analysing. So the typical transactions we're processing on a day-to-day basis and looking at who's causing the fail and what can we do to mitigate that going forward in, in an attempt to really make this more efficient ahead of the February deadline. So I think if you take a look at our transactions, you look at loans that we make to borrowers, one of the reasons why loans sometimes fail is because of problems with the SSIs, the settlement information being incorrect. There's a huge focus on that across the industry, trying to get SSIs matching and using where possible vendor solutions to help with that. So you would think that is doable, that ahead of February, most people will look to line up their SSIs. But loans would be an example where in our case and in our program, we typically see that we've got the instruction incorrectly and that the borrower sometimes has a mismatched instruction. So in that case, we wouldn't incur a fine or penalty for our client and it would fall on the borrower if it carried on mismatching past the intended settlement date. On the return side of things, you know, we obviously issue recalls to borrowers as and when we have a client sale of a security that's on loan. So that recall goes out and for some reason the borrower can't return it on time then that would incur a sell-fail penalty. And once again, our instruction is in the market correctly. The borrower is the one that is failing against us on the return. And so they would pick up the penalties associated with that return. Let's just take that through a little bit further, because obviously, as I mentioned, that was to do with a client sale. So the client sale is going to fail as well because our recall hasn't come in on time. So in that instance, the client sale will incur a debit penalty against our client which will be offset by the credit they'll receive on the recall that's been made to the borrower. So that would be neutral in that situation. So that's a couple of examples purely based upon the securities finance transactions. And then clearly there is the client sales. I just want to translate what you just said. So again, in a typical, let's say a lender's timing of a recall is within market standards and you know on trade date, the borrower is failing past the recall default date or past the settlement date, there's a fail penalty on that that the borrower owes that will credit ultimately the lender. But on the other side of that, because the borrower didn't send back the shares in time, that lender is then failing in the market on their sale of the equity position. So they're going to be debited for that. But you're saying those two should net each other off because the charge amount will be the same, one basis point charge, and if it's the same size, assuming it's the exact same size, it's not partialed or whatever, that that should completely net itself off. That's correct. Okay, great. Actually, I just think while you were saying that, Ed, has that been validated that those costs net exactly? Because my question was going to be whether or not the CSD or anyone else for that matter was taking a percentage of these fees that are being levied for oversight, for execution, for management? Well, I think in terms of the calculation of the sell-fail penalty on both of those transactions, they're the same, Simon. So it's basically the number of shares, the market va- the market price, and then calculating the one basis point on that. So, so the calculation of the fail on the sale is exactly the same as the fail on the recall. And it's being performed by the same entity because it's being settled at the same CSD. So you would expect the numbers to be exactly the same. So in effect, is what you're saying that the CSD is doing this for no cost, no profit, effectively? 
it's a regulatory requirement on the CSDs. Right. What I wanted to do was just take your example, Brooke, a little bit further, which you talked about a client selling a security, instruction being received on trade date. Prior to market close, we get the recall out during market hours and recall it for standard settlement cycle. Now, clearly, we understand that not all clients trade earlier in the day. Some of them will trade at the market close. So one thing to be aware of is that if a client is selling late in the day and they need to get that instruction over to their custodian and to us as a third-party lending agent, then there's a likelihood that the recall instruction will go in after market close. Right. In which case, then there's a mismatch between the recall T plus two and the original trade date T plus two. So there will be a one-day penalty incurred in that situation. Now, there's a number of things you can do to mitigate against that. And I think, you know, one of the things that we would talk to clients about and we've got experience with with our client base, as you know, is linking in with clients' trade execution systems to be able to get sort of, in effect, a same-day pre-sell notification from clients where they trade multiple times during the day. Maybe we have more intraday trade instructions coming across so that we pick up the ones earlier in the day and you maybe only have a very small subset of traded later in the day. And then for that one that is sort of late in the day that does come through, then what you'd expect is the one-day penalty that you're going to incur on that should be more than offset by the value of the security that's on loan and the revenue you're making from not just that security, but all the other transactions that are obviously still out on loan as well. So right. I think you know at this point in time, it's all about looking to improve the process around the trade instructions, making certain that you can make those as timely as possible during trade date, look at the potential execution engines that are out there and see if you can get across a pre-execution file. And that will all help mitigate the risk that is out there from this one basis point self-fail penalty. Great. So big picture, this regulation and the implementation of the settlement discipline regime should significantly lower settlement failures in all European markets. It should make counterparts, the instruction process more efficient as well, because people will be highly incented to make sure that they are matching their instructions, that they have proper SSIs in their systems, that they're set up, that they're not having, if you will, operational errors and reasons why things are failing. And that failures should ultimately, in our world, in the world of securities lending, failures should start to then really be just a cause of where someone is truly short to deliver rather than any of the operational noise that could occur on occasion, et cetera. And that if someone's truly short to deliver, most of that is going to be because the borrower is short to deliver, can't return, and therefore ultimately responsible for those penalties. And there could be some noise around costs and penalty noise to a lender, perhaps, if they aren't able to be efficient in terms of the timeliness of their notification of what they have been trading to get it in on trade date. But that noise ultimately is hopefully minimal and importantly as well, offset by whatever value you're obtaining anyway in a securities lending program where it's going to be a small percentage of that overall to potentially reduce that potential value. Is that a reasonable summary, I guess, in terms of the relevance, Ed? I think so. I'd agree with you that I think everyone is focused on becoming more efficient and we've still got a few months of time to do that. And I think most people would expect that by the time we get to February, they've ironed out a number of the things that perhaps cause issues today 
And whether that be something they're building themselves or whether they're using vendor solutions for that, I think everyone is aiming to get themselves in a good space by the start of February next year. So let's say that that all happens and everyone is operating in a much more efficient manner operationally, which is great. I mean, that's a positive and that's a good thing. I'm sure that's ultimately what the regulation was likely intended for anyway, in terms of cause and effect. But what about the cause and effect of in the lending space, this actually opening up opportunity in terms of trade value to lenders where securities are being borrowed even more so just to facilitate settlement, to avoid settlement failures and to facilitate efficient settlement of securities, which is really one of the core reasons why securities lending first started in the marketplace in the first place. What do you think about that in terms of you know, potential opportunity to facilitate settlement failure and having that yeah. driving more volume for loan activity? Yeah, it does take us back to the early days of securities lending, doesn't it? When yeah. we were here to facilitate better settlement. And I think that's absolutely the case. So I think what you'll find is for lenders who have efficient programs that are being managed efficiently, not just by their lending agent, but by their custodian, where they're different, then you would expect there to be opportunity, certainly around same day trades. So where a borrower establishes in the morning that they are short of liquidity in other transactions they're taking part in, and they can source it from you as a lender on a same day basis so that they can then cover those fails, there's clearly going to be increased demand for that. And I think for certain lenders, they will be able to participate in that and there'll be upside as a result of it. So I'm always a glass half full kind of person. You know, I like to focus on the opportunity that CSDR will bring. And I absolutely agree with you that I think there is going to be opportunities for some, probably not all, but certainly for some. And I think if I was a lender listening to this podcast, I would be talking to my lending agent about how I can hopefully take part in some of that upside. And is there anything I can do to help facilitate that, that I maybe I'm not doing today? So I think that would be a message that I would be taking away from this, which is not just clearly what the nuts and bolts of CSDR is and what it means for me in terms of fail penalties. But you know, what else can I be doing to actually maybe take advantage of some of the opportunity here? And Ed, so when this is implemented and is operating as they would intend, how would you compare then the European markets in terms of settlement protocols and efficiency versus some of the other global markets that securities lending is active in? Do you see this significantly ahead of many? Do you see it actually still now just equal? Because obviously I know you spend a lot of time when we're looking to open new markets and for some of the more emerging markets that we participate in, heavily focused around the operational implications of settlement failures. And some markets are no fail markets and have been operating that way for a very long time. So could you compare and contrast what you think that this will look like for the European markets for lending versus maybe some of the Asian markets or other more developed markets? Yeah, it's a good question. If I just go back to the mandatory buy-ins, for example, for liquid securities, the mandatory buy-ins are going to kick in if they come in on ISD plus four. And, you know, I think as you're fully aware, we deal today in markets where buy-ins occur at the end of settlement date or on settlement date plus one. So to some extent, from a securities lending perspective, the mandatory buy-ins, I think, were I was less concerned about because I, I felt volumes of those would be significantly lower, if at all. And But obviously, with the failed penalties, the volumes on those are going to be significant because obviously, every time you have a fail, you're going to get a penalty. So I think there's differences between that. I feel that 
if we take mandatory buy-ins off the table, or even if they stay on at ISD plus four, that's significantly lighter than some of the markets we operate in Asia. Where but yet the sales, you early. think, are greater than some of those other markets is sort of what you're so, so the, Yeah, so the fail penalty regime, the challenge with that is where we do operate in some of the other markets where there are also fail penalties, the volumes of transactions in those markets are relatively low. So therefore, you don't deal with them very often. But obviously, what we're going to have in the EU is we're going to have fail penalties, the volumes are going to be significantly higher. And the whole processing of those, the reporting of them, and to some extent, the reconciliation of those is going to be much more challenging for every participant in the EU markets, not just ESEC lending for the piece we do. So I think that's where the main difference will be. So I realize that we probably need to start thinking about wrapping this up because there's only so much CSDR talk that our fine audience is going to stick with us through. But question, fixed income instruments, Ed, What's the general view on that? How do the penalties work on fixed income positions? It, does it feel very much like everything else we've been talking about, but yet maybe just at different rates? What's the synopsis there? Yeah, you've got it. It's exactly the same as for the equities, but it has a different rate against it. So the sell-fail penalty for corporate bonds is 0.2 basis points, and for sovereign debt is 0.1 basis points. So the penalties are less, but the whole process is the same. Okay. And to translate, not is zero. <laughs> not is zero. I love talking to people in different parts of the world where I can I'm explain just, myself. I, well, no, I'm translate. I mean, you know, many people might know it as not and others might know it as zero, but I wouldn't want people to be confused if they didn't know how to translate. That's okay. I was talking about lorry drivers today, which of course are truck drivers in the US. <laughs> yes, yes. We don't have such a thing, but yes. I have one question to finish up on and recognizing the lengthy timeline you were describing earlier from when you started working on this, Ed, and we're looking now into 2022. Have there been any, to your mind, maybe a bit more subjectively, any unintended consequences that may show themselves once this is live? If you were to get your crystal ball out Having lived and breathed this for such a long period of time, and as I say, the dates are being pushed back and pushed back, anything that you think may surprise people? I actually would like to think that the surprise for people will be that this isn't going to be as impactful as they perhaps think it is. I think if you look at the work that's being done at an industry level, you look at, look at the work that's being done by the individual players, I think you'll find ultimately that the numbers involved are actually relatively small. Clearly, the volumes will be maybe lighter than we currently think because people are going to move forward with improving their processes and procedures and operations will tighten up between now and February. But I actually think this might not be such a big deal. I think the real problem area is just the people who are responsible for having to process this and pass through the reporting. That's a fairly significant task for them and how much of that is automated but I think if you think about the constituency that we speak to, I'd like to think that this actually passes through and people perhaps 10 months after it's gone into play, look back and say, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I have one last future focus question, Ed. So you spent a lot of time on SFTR and now a lot of time on CSDR. Is there something looming that you are looking forward to in the grand world of regulatory acronyms? after CSDR or are you looking forward to hopefully spending time on lots of other initiatives? 
I don't think there is anything out there at the moment that is the size of SFTR and CSDR. I think we can expect lots of initiatives around ESG, for example. So I'd say that subject has got lots of miles in it yet. And I think Isla said earlier this year in conversations they're having with the regulators, ESMA and the national competent authorities in the EU, that there is going to be a tsunami of regulation coming our way. So I don't think we've seen the last of regulation. I have a job and a seat for a little bit longer yet. Um, But I'm not sure what type of flavor it's going to have. But I think I wouldn't hesitate to say that there's more coming. Okay, well, when you start heading uphill to the evacuation point, will you let us all know? So we can (laughs) well be prepared. (laughs) Sure, for sure. That'll be an interesting podcast. (laughs) Okay. All right. You're not even near the coast, though, right? No, no, I'm not. So, yeah. So we don't have to worry too much about you. You'll stay dry and on your feet. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. All right. We might need to worry more about Simon, I think, or when Simon is on his holiday. When I'm in my beach huts, yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, Simon, Ed, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. I know it was different than our typical Peter, Jim, Brooks show, but I don't know. We might give them a run for the money in terms of level of excitement and interest in this topic. So I really do appreciate you guys taking the time and maybe we'll tune back in once the consultation has been further clarified and we know whether or not the mandatory buy-ins are in or out because I appreciate we, we meant to go back to it in more detail, but we didn't. And perhaps maybe that is better saved for a later podcast when there is final clarity on whether they will remain in the regulation or not. So we can worry about that at a later date. Hopefully a date sooner than later, of course, though, right? Hopefully. All right. Thank you all. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you joining us. And if you have other topics that you would like to hear from us, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at ESEC Lending. Thank you. Bye.